Let's ask for help this morning. God, I pray that you would impress on us the weight of these words that begin our text. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Lord, this word, this scripture that we read together, Lord, this is your word. And so we pray for this to do precisely what this passage says, that it's two-edged, that it both cuts and heals. And we pray for that, Lord. We pray for this word to cut this morning. We pray for conviction of sin that could lead to repentance. And we pray, Lord, for healing through gospel graces as we rely on your work instead of ours. We need you, Lord. We need you to understand this word. We need uh, you to, to have understanding, but we need you, Lord, to apply it and to live according to it, to believe it. And so we declare belief in it, but Lord, help our unbelief in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start this morning with a question. And this is a question that I think should be just generally speaking, helpful for us to kind of limber up and prepare our hearts and minds for the text that we're about to read, the, the central idea that I think this author wants to speak to this original audience. And the question is this, how does evil come into existence? Think about that just for a minute. How does evil come into existence? As you ponder that question, it's very possible that some of you, especially those of you um, who were with us in our last series where we talked about it every chapter in Genesis, some of you are, are remembering back to Genesis chapter 3. And you're saying, that's how evil comes into existence, right? I mean, like, that's this point in human history in which sin and suffering and death enter the world because Adam and Eve and, and the serpent in the garden, we see this, this quest for wisdom that kind of supersedes God, that attempts to end around him to go around him for wisdom, to, to de-God God and put ourselves on the throne. And this is the point at which evil enters the world. And of course that's true. It's not really what I mean by the question, though. How does evil come into existence? What I'm asking is, and I, I have no doubt that that's the first example of it, and that that's really the root cause of it, but throughout history, how is it possible that people or groups of people might rise to power with evil agendas and not only rise to power with an evil agenda, an evil worldview, but capture the hearts of others to join them in that. You know? Capture the hearts of others to come along with them in this evil, to spread that evil, to bring that evil into, into an existence that actually goes out from there, right? That other people participate in. People that I think nor, under normal circumstances we would kind of say, yeah, those are seemingly normal people. You know, I was watching a a documentary that I've talked about before about the events that led to World War II. There's this, as this, this part, this aspect of the documentary that focuses on these pictures of these Nazi officers who at this point in time in the war absolutely knew what was happening. They knew what they believed, you know, they knew what the Nazis really taught about life. They knew the evil, the wickedness, and they not only knew it and had come to embrace it, but were helping to, to uh, spread it to do destructive work as a result of it and showed these, these high-ranking officials with their assistants going on holiday. These pictures of them swimming at the beach together, uh, building sandcastles with their kids, eating meals around tables, reading stories to their family by firelight, tucking their kids into bed, all these things that are like 
you know, eerily normal human activities, reconciling that with the reality of what they believed, this idea that was kind of propagated by this evil group that they had actually bought into and actually joined with the evil. And we sort of, we look at these pictures and the filmmaker kind of pauses and he says, how did, how did that happen? You know, how does it happen that evil can spread this way to the extent that people can just go about their normal lives? And, and at, the, at that point, whether they realize it's evil or not, we don't know, but it just seems utterly bizarre for us. And I think the answer to how evil comes into existence in that way is, well, not overnight. You know, the way that movements like that start isn't by the tanks rolling into the city square and saying, you will all believe this evil thing that I believe while the, you know, the villain twists his mustache and laughs and rubs his hands together, you know. We see that in the movies, but this isn't how movements begin. Now, eventually, sure, the tanks rolling into town square and leading by fear, that, that eventually happens. But how do you gain a popular Movement. Well, not overnight. Actually, probably throughout history, because we've seen this happen a number of times in human history, it actually happens by people uh, grabbing onto something else that's being held out to them while they kind of get gaslit on the problems, on the rot, on the evil. It's sort of like, ah, that's not, nothing to see here. That's not really a problem. But look at all the good that I can do for you, this perceived good. And so there's a willingness to ignore the rot, to ignore the evil, to press in toward this, this thing that's being offered, right? That's why I think Genesis 3 is such a good first example, right? It's what happens. But pressing in on this thing that's offered, ignoring the evil until eventually you just embrace the evil. And so there's a couple of different groups of people, right? That uh, There's people who embrace it. And more and more, maybe even unknowingly, as they progress into it, just become embodying, become those who embody that evil. Then there are those who stand against it. They see it, they identify it. They stand against it and they say, no, we're, we're willing to die for it. And then there are those who are kind of caught in between. Where it's like, look, uh, the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. I don't want that to be me. So I'm not willing to risk anything. But I, I kind of know all is not right. You know, in first century, Pergamum had a similar feeling uh, especially from within the life of the church. There's something similar going on in the lives of those who are now receiving John's letter, and they're hearing these encouragements. They're hearing these warnings. Pergamum, just, you know, the, as the courier kind of continues to, to deliver this letter, uh, his next stop from Smyrna would be Pergamum, 70 miles north of Smyrna, thanks to Justin for preaching on that text last week, and about 15 miles inland. And the city actually had its citadel 1,300 feet above the plain of the Caucasus River. And because of that elevation, it was seen as a major military fortress. It had major military capabilities. And so it grew and grew in power and status and eventually became the center of what we call the imperial cult in Asia. Just by way of reminder, much of what Revelation is written about, on my view, is a warning about this first century imperial cult. What was it? Well, it was the predominant view of the day. The pr predominant view of culture. The pr predominant worldview of its time. And at its heart was the requirement of emperor worship. You didn't have to worship only the emperor, you know? Certainly, hey, you can worship Jesus too. You can worship Yahweh. You, can, you have to make room in your places of worship for the emperor. In the Greek world, Pergamum being no exception, it was deeply and manifestly pagan. So for most people, this wasn't a problem. But 
The emperor had to be among those who were, were worshipped, and he had to be seen as divine or at the very least venerated in some sense. And to be a proper citizen, here's at the very least what could never happen in the first century. You couldn't speak out against such worship. You couldn't say, no, 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 that is wrong. Do you know what happens when we start to equate a man with God? Do you know how bad that is for us to equate this person who's not God? He's actually creation, and you're conflating him with creator? There's only one God, and the emperor is not him. You couldn't say this in the first century without being seen as bigoted against the predominant view, narrow-minded in your treatment of the people who held to that view, the paganism of that surrounding culture, and disruptive, frankly, as a citizen of Rome. You couldn't speak those realities. That's the pressure that Christians were facing. All over Asia Minor at this point in time, likely under the rule of Domitian, when the pressure to adhere to that view of the day, the imperial cult, just grew and grew and grew. And in first century Pergamum, Christians knew that more than most places, because it was the capital city of the imperial cult. It was the first city in Asia to be allowed a temple to a living ruler, just decades before John writes this letter to this church, to these churches. And as he writes, he notes that this church has actually seen someone killed for speaking out against it, and I think it's useful, we'll do it now, we'll do it a little bit later, but I think it's useful for us to think about, to, first to imagine one of our own members of our church being killed for speaking about what the, clearly, what, the, what the scriptures clearly teach, right? That's reality for this first century church, and John is saying it's about to get worse. So what are they called to do about it? Well, in order to understand John's remarks, we need to follow, really, as we look at this section of text, we need to follow step-by-step step, the content of his specific remarks to the church. When we do that, we come to see four areas of concern that God desires for this church to address. Right? Well, we always preach the structure of a passage at Gospel Life Church. The reason we preach the structure of a passage is because this helps us to learn how to read our Bibles. You know, the, the author of this text has a specific uh, message. He's writing to a specific audience. It's useful for us to see his structure, so we preach that structure. And the structure here is, if you're taking notes, four areas of concern that God desires for them to address as he reveals this directly to them through John. So remember in chapter 1, the claim here is that we're dealing with direct revelation from God. Thus saith the Lord. This is from Jesus to the people of the church of Pergamum. And he has four areas of concern in this. We see this first in the prologue of his remarks. Then in the, we see it in the pressure that they face. We see the problem that's developing in the midst of that pressure and the promise that he gives them. Okay, the prologue, introduction, right? The pressure, the problem, and the promise. Let's start with the prologue of his remarks. This is his introduction. Jesus' remarks to the church in Pergamum. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So the, the prologue, to stop there for a minute, prologue is a call for these believers to hear these words and to listen and to apply them. It actually begins this way and it ends this way. He who has ears, let him hear these words. But at the front end, we can ask, how does he describe these words? He says, they're the words of him who has the sharp 
two-edged sword. And again, we talked about the double-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of this vision of the risen and glorified Christ in chapter 1. Throughout the Old Testament, the double-edged sword represents God's Word, which as uh, we prayed together, both cuts and heals. And here in these really early chapters in Revelation, and here as we'll see at the end of Revelation, it really represents judgment. He's going to return in chapter 19 to judge the nations with that sword. It says he will strike down the nations with his sharp sword. And it's no mistake that the sword is brought up again here as uh, Jesus directs John to address Pergamum. Because the Roman proconsul, that's the person who spoke on behalf of Rome to all of Asia Minor, he lives in Pergamum. He resides in this city, which again was known for its military might, so it's kind of the ideal place for the Roman proconsul to be. And do you want to know what the symbol in first century Pergamum of the Roman proconsul's total sovereignty over every, every area of life was? It's the sword, the broadsword, sending a signal that to cross the Roman proconsul, to cross uh, the Roman Empire, uh, to, 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 to abandon or reject the idea of his total sovereignty would be to face that sword by way of execution. And here Jesus kind of reverses that and he says, whoa, hang on, I want to make sure you understand because it could be easy for you to, to fear the Roman sword. Wait a minute, you, you really think the Roman proconsul has a sword? You think his sword is something that has some kind of control, has some kind of sovereignty over every aspect of life. It kind of reminds you of that scene from Crocodile Dundee where the guy takes out the switchblade, you know, and challenges him, and Dundee pulls out the bowie knife. He goes, that's not a knife, you know. Uh, That's what Jesus is doing here. That's not a sword. That's nothing like the sword that I bring. Here he tells the church in Pergamum that it is the risen Christ, not the high-ranking Roman officials, that they should see as totally sovereign over every area of life. You think they're the ultimate judge? You think they should hold your allegiance? No, it's Christ. So his first area of concern in the prologue is simply this. So, okay, the prologue of his remarks, number one, Jesus is the true judge. Jesus is the true judge. And it's important to have that mindset now as we move from the prologue to the pressures that they face, starting in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Jesus essentially tells to them, look, look, listen, listen. I know. I know the pressures that you face. I know the the circumstances, the situation in which you find yourselves. So Jesus comforts this first century church by his knowledge of their circumstances and his sovereignty over them. And it's a reminder back to how Jesus describes himself and really reveals himself to John in chapter 1. He's one who walks among the lampstands. He resides with the churches. He knows. Gospel Life Church, Jesus knows our situation. He knows the circumstances that we face. He knows our future. He holds it in his hand. And in particular, Jesus tells them that he knows two things about their circumstances. And these are things he continues to know about local churches today all over the world. Number one, he knows the world in which they live. 
He knows the world in which they live. He knows the pressures they face because he knows everything about the city that they live in. He knows everything about uh, the people who have earthly authority in this city. In this case, he describes the city as a place, as the place where Satan dwells. The place where Satan's throne is. What does that mean? Well, lots of interpretations. One of which I think gets repeated a lot is, um, and I only address it because it's very common and you might not have heard it, that's okay. But it, it's that, uh, John is talking about the Acropolis here, where you have all these idols, and that if actually if you look at the, the Acropolis, it looks like a giant seat. You know, if you look at kind of the ruins, it looks like a throne, it looks like a seat. The reason, I mean, I would push back on that mildly, uh, and, and say I don't find it super convincing is because there aren't any records actually historically to anyone uh, thinking of the Acropolis and Pergamum that way. Like, it's not a reading that first century readers would have been aware of, at least. I think it tends to be based on a more modern speculation as we look at ruins, and we don't always know how things eroded, you know, over time, but we look at ruins and we say, oh, look how that kind of looks like a seat. But, but there's not really any evidence for it. The bigger problem with it is that it would place the weight of the pressure that the first century Christians are facing on Greek Paganism on the Acropolis, which I don't think reflects the primary problem. Certainly it was a problem. Certainly a lot of pressure uh, on Christians came from paganism, without question. But it's not the primary problem in the context of Revelation. So what do I think it means? Well, again, looking at how the phrase itself is used in the first century, this idea of a seat or a throne signified special authority or royal governance that someone held in a particular area. So... It's named here as a place where Satan uniquely governs related to the central area of pressure and evil uprising against first century Christians. I think it's a reference to the imperial cult. I think it's a reference to emperor worship. This is, as I'll continue to argue, the major problem behind most of the book of Revelation that first century Christians are facing. And when you look at what first century writers did say about Pergamum, as we said, you find it to be not just one of the centers of the imperial cult of, of the Roman Empire, but the very center of this cult in Asia Minor, where he's addressing these letters. This is where the prevailing worldview in Asia resides. It's like Mordor in Lord of the Rings, right, to a certain extent. Yes, the dark powers of Mordor spread all over Middle-earth, and eventually not even the Shire will be safe from it. But the seat of Sauron, the place where his eye resides, is in Mordor itself. That's where he dwells. And the same is true related to emperor worship and the cult that drove first century Pergamum and Satan's, uh, his influence on people there. This is the cult of emperor worship. It's, it's shown to be nothing less than satanic. Right? The primary thrust of the remark is aimed at the prevailing view of the day. One that first century culture said, if you don't adhere to this... You're a bigoted, narrow-minded troublemaker. And I'm not making that up. You would have people in the Roman Empire uh, absolutely ratting out Christians in the first century for not jumping on board with this or for, for speaking out against it. So he knows the world in which they live. He knows how serious the pressure is. He knows the source of it is absolute evil. But he also knows, secondly, that they've been faithful and they have endured in the midst of that pressure, which is quite remarkable, you know. Um, look at this, the rest of this verse. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Though Satan dwell there, though 
there's this kind of evil pressure, though there's this kind of persecution. You did not deny my faith even when one was killed among you. Imagine this being the level of persecution here. That failing to agree with the prevailing winds had already resulted in one of the death of our members. That's the extent to which he was faithful. He did not love his life even unto death. It's remarkable. So that's the pressure they face. And it's, it can be summed up this way. Persecution requiring faithfulness. Persecution requiring faithfulness. The, the prologue of his remarks, Jesus is the true judge. Pressure that they face. Persecution requiring faithfulness. That's the pressure. And third, we find the problem now. That's developing as they seek to stand in the midst of that pressure. Verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so there's a problem here. Yes, okay, so Jesus does commend them. He commends them for their faithfulness, their continued devotion to Jesus. But he also indicts them for compromising on their doctrine. And that's a really serious indictment because even as Revelation continues, we'll see this, according to Jesus, doctrine and devotion are ultimately linked. You really can't have the one without the other. You can't be, and Justin talked about this a couple weeks ago, but you can't be unfaithful to doctrine and devoted to Jesus simultaneously. So if this compromise, which Jesus declares is sinful, continues without any repentance, Jesus says there will be consequences for that. But before we get to the consequences, we have to ask, what's the nature of the compromise here? In what sense is this first century church starting to abandon their doctrinal mores? Well, uh, the, the text tells us that some of the people in the church in Pergamum hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then it references the story in the Old Testament. If you're interested to read it later on, you can find it in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. But the short version of the story is that Balaam is this prophet, non-Israelite prophet. We don't really know a lot about him other than the fact that he, he really pretty badly wants to curse um, the people of Israel, right? And the reason, for the most part, that he wants to curse the people of Israel so badly is because there's a great deal of money in it for him. Because one of the enemies of Israel, the king of Moab, Balak, going to pay him a great deal of money if he's able to curse them, right? So there's a vested interest on the part of the king of Moab, Balak, to curse Israel. They're, they're his enemies. Uh, but there's a vested interest on the part of Balaam, too. He would really like to get this done because it means a great deal of money for him. So he tries. But God not only stops him from doing it, but he gives him words of blessing. He forces him to speak words of blessing to Israel instead, despite the fact that he's offered this amount of money. So he comes back to Balak, and Balak is like, what is going on? Like, Curse them. I got, am I not offering you enough? And he's like, look, it's just, it's not how it works. The way that you've kind of devised this isn't going to work. Like, I can't really curse them unless it comes from God. It doesn't work that way. I'm not like a diviner who can go and like speak an incantation. If God's not in that, it's just going to be gobbledygook. It's just words. It doesn't mean anything. But if you actually, if you really want to curse them, I mean, I, I can't speak any words that'll do that. God's the one who has to be in this, not me. If he speaks a word of curse, it means something. But if you really want to curse them, here's what you do. So this is the teaching of Balaam. All right? Don't send people to condemn them. 
You know, don't send people who are their enemies to condemn them. Quite the opposite, actually. Befriend them. Send them your most, most attractive women to show, to, to, to lure them in. Your most charming men to show them that gods, the gods of, of, uh, the Mo- Moabites are pretty, pretty decent, actually. Pretty good. Like, you don't have to stop worshiping Yahweh. They don't have to stop the kind of worship they want to, they want to do. Uh, and, and actually, they can recognize that your gods in, in Moab are pretty good too. Make them think that after all, there must be a lot of truth in uh, what a lot of these pagan deities are saying. Like, we can find truth there, right? It's like, some of the things they're saying must be true. So let them see all the, the positive aspects. Give them, give them opportunities to serve in your temple. And make sure that you're involved in their worship so that you can praise all the parts, aspects of their worship that you think can be incorporated in this with the aim of slowly drawing them into another worldview entirely, slowly bringing them into paganism. And before they know it, they'll find themselves under God's curse because their God is a jealous God, I'm telling you, who says that he alone is the source of truth. And the means of life. And that all these other gods are falsehoods. They bring destruction. So get them to think that, hey, there's nothing to see here. Nothing upsetting happening here, right? Nobody's saying that it has to disrupt your worship of Yahweh. There's nothing threatening about this. Gaslight them, essentially. Make them question their own reality that they see by essentially telling them, it's, it's uh, nothing to see here. Pretty soon they'll find themselves under this judgment because they compromised. So don't condemn them, befriend them. That's the teaching of Balaam. And that's what's going on here. The church in Pergamum has not been disciplined. They have not been discerning as it relates to how they deal with outside teaching. This is essentially, I think, what the Nicolaitans were doing. I think that's why in this context they're brought up here. You know, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but in every context we see this idea that over time they begin to embrace more and more of the worldview of the day, or at least the actions of the worldview of the day. They say, oh, come on, stop it. It's not really that bad. You can still be a Christian and embrace the cult, embrace certain aspects of the cult. It's perfectly fine. Nobody's saying otherwise. It's all just a big distraction. Meanwhile, they're leading people directly to hell. That's what they're doing. And Jesus is saying here that they will be called to account for it. D.A. Carson writes this very helpfully. He says, What is almost certainly going on here is some teaching voice in the church. Listen to this. Some teaching voice in the church openly advocating less discipline within the church and much more compromise with alien teaching from outside until eventually God's wrath is threatening the whole church. I fear that many churches in the West have this problem today. So that's the problem they're facing, undisciplined with outside teaching. The less disciplined they become with their doctrine, the less discerning they become in examining outside teaching, the more compromising they've been with the gospel, and then the more they've conformed to the world around them. The more their life starts to reflect the world around them and not the gospel. The reference in this text to participation in pagan worship, sexual sin, shows that compromising on doctrinal issues so that they'll come into line with the doctrines of culture... Listen to me, it always leads to conforming to the practices of that surrounding culture. So that in the end, there's this blurred line between church and culture. It's like a complete mixture. There's, there's no difference. There's no, there's no Christian counterculture anymore. 
the church just looks and acts exactly like the world around us. And so, because of that, we see he gives them a promise, finally. The promise he gives them. The problem they're facing, undisciplined, with outside teaching. The promise he gives them. He gives the promise both negatively and positively. First negatively, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This should be terrifying. It's pretty straightforward. It's not mincing words. And it's pretty common, I think, for Christians to say right now, what's the big deal? You know? What's the big deal if I start to deconstruct historic Orthodox Christianity and believe something different from what I see in the straightforward teaching of Scripture? What's what's the big deal? I, I still confess Jesus. I can still love my neighbor. What's... What's the problem? Well, frankly, Jesus here thinks it's a pretty big deal. I don't know how. I don't know how you get around passages like this one where Jesus himself calls upon believers who've been undisciplined with outside teaching to repent. He doesn't just encourage them to kind of like, yeah, it's okay, but I'd rather have it. No, repent or there's a promise attached to that of judgment. You know, and this isn't the first time. This isn't somehow new. Throughout the Gospels, we actually see Jesus calling on those who've been undisciplined with their doctrine to repent, you know? Throughout the Gospels, we see a Jesus who says, look, there's a broad road, that leads to destruction. There's the narrow road, and it's hard, but it leads to life. This isn't some kind of new vision of Jesus. And here in Revelation, we have the risen, exalted Christ, not only calling upon these believers to repent, but issuing a warning. And it's the same warning that Jesus presented throughout the Gospels. The warning of judgment, the warning of destruction. Failure to repent from the teachings of Balaam, the slow and steady openness to outside teaching and doctrine, the slow and steady building of a distrust in the people of God between God and His Word, like the the distrust of God's Word when we open and read it, then the slow and steady rebellion against God, the sometimes not so slow rejection of the Gospel and the life that now reflects the world around you, it will result in judgment. The reason is, Because sin and rebellion against God's word, it's active rebellion against a good king who holds out life and salvation. It's the declaration that he's your enemy. Like, he, you're declaring that when we do this. We're declaring this when we rebel against him. God's a just God, and and we see in his declaration that he himself will soon come and war against those who've done so much harm and destruction in drawing people away from the living God. Do we really think that a slow trajectory of drawing people away from the God who offers life doesn't deserve judgment? That judgment in such a circumstance would be unjust? I would argue that if this is the case, we've lost all perspective related to justice. The question in this text is what the author means by soon. So the judgment's happening if they don't repent. Right? That judgment will happen for all who don't repent. The question is what he means by soon. It could be a reference to Jesus coming in history in the first century to judge this church if they do not repent. It could also be like an eschatological second coming in the future, the final judgment in the end kind of judgment where these believers will be judged in the end. 
Their eternal fate will be decided. I'm not quite sure, actually, that the imminence of the coming in the language, soon, doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to occur in a short period of time when we read through the Scriptures. So that's not super clear. We'll see that throughout Revelation. Having said that, my sense is that it's probably both. I think this is a judgment in history. It's most likely interpretation. But in any case, regardless of whether you see this as a promise to judge in history or a promise to judge in the end, don't get distracted from the main point, which Tom Schreiner just drives home for us. He says, he writes this in his excellent commentary of Revelation. He says, The sword in Jesus' mouth, the mighty word he speaks, will be wielded against those who've given themselves over to evil in the way that this passage describes. It will be wielded. So that's the negative promise. Failure to repent will result in God's judgment. Now we see the promise positively in the rest of the passage. Verse 17 gives the believers in Pergamum the solution. I mean, verse 16 is part of that solution, repent, right? But here we see how that's possible. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give... Some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's what's the solution to the church's problem here? Like, how does one conquer? How does one conquer this desire to follow our own hearts to destruction? To compromise with culture? To destruction. To embrace outside teaching is no big deal. To slowly allow for that which the scriptures don't allow. To perhaps not so slowly then have a life that reflects those changes. How do you conquer that? Well, we see that in the promise itself. We conquer it not through our efforts, but we conquer it through him who gives us hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. What does it mean? Well, here we find images that are very unfamiliar to us, but we're very familiar in an apocalyptic first century context. This word manna in apocalyptic literature, I could, I could uh, read to you many examples, was a common symbol of heavenly reward for those who are faithful to the end. So if you're faithful to the end, you're rewarded. You're given reward. But that should prompt a question in, in the minds of a first century reader who sees that, Right? Because how is it possible that that's the case? How is it possible that a church who's starting to slowly allow entrance to outside teachings contrary to Scripture, how is it possible that they'll be rewarded as faithful, even if they repent? It's like, if you're on trial for treason, you know, that you actually are guilty of committing, you're not allowed to say, no, I mean, I'd like to have the reward instead of the, instead of the judgment because I repent. You know, like imagine being able to, if the court system worked that way, where you're on trial for murder and you say, well, yeah, I mean, I did it, but I shouldn't go to jail. I should actually get a reward because I repent. You know, I turn from it. Well, I'm glad you repent, but there's still consequences. You're guilty. You're not innocent. There's guilt. So how is it possible that a guilty church, even, even in the midst of repentance, could receive this kind of reward? And the answer to that is found in the next promise of a white stone, which is always put in terms of a heavenly reward as well. Like, okay, so in the first century, stones were used in court cases. Like, this is actually what was happening in first century Pergamon. 
Stones were used in court cases to signify the guilt or innocence of those who are on trial. So there's the man who's on trial in front of the court for treason. And each judge in the first century in ruling on this case would either put a black stone in the hat to cast a guilty verdict or a white stone to declare innocence. Here we're shown that despite the reality that what we all deserve is a guilty verdict, like a black stone, like we did it, right? So repentance or not, we, you know, or any, any claim to repentance or not, we, we're guilty. Even though that's the case, those who are faithful to the end will be given a white stone which signifies innocence despite our guilt. In other words, though we were guilty of sin, though we were on trial for treason, though we should have been given black stone, our names were etched on a black stone. In subsequent judgment, our guilt fell upon Jesus. He took the black stone with my name on it, the consequences for that, on his shoulders. Who, though he was innocent and had a white stone with his name, took our punishment upon himself that we might be declared innocent with him. In other words, the white stone isn't given on the basis of your performance and being faithful. But rather, what this shows us is that those who remain faithful were those who truly believed, were those who truly threw themselves upon the mercies of Christ. Those who truly had his name written over theirs that they might have life. Those who do not persevere to the end, those who are led astray and lead others astray, those who exchange the truth of the gospel for the lies of the culture will be shown in the end to not have ever belonged to Christ. And it's his name, I believe, that we receive on that stone, and it's through this that believers can accomplish the central theme. So if there's one primary central teaching that I believe the original author is trying to impress upon the readers in this text, it's this. The church must not conform to the world by compromising its teachings with the world. The church must not conform to the world by compromising its teachings with the world. In other words, the, the church must remain faithful in doctrine and devotion. Devotion to Christ apart from faithful in doctrine is not possible. So how do we do that at Gospel Life Church? How can we remain faithful in our doctrine and therefore in our devotion to Jesus Christ? Let's just look real quickly at three areas of application. Number one, first of all, the church is responsible to hold their leaders accountable as it relates to not compromising the Scriptures. Gospel Life Church, I'm talking to you. You know, it's interesting, right? Because Revelation, I don't believe, I don't hold that it's being written just to church leaders. I, I take angel to be an angelic being and not a church leader. I think it's, I think collectively throughout these, these specific letters to these church, to these seven churches, you actually find language that's addressed to the church body, to all of you. So, so, the church at large is responsible to hold their leaders accountable. And I invite you to do that. If, if church leadership at Gospel Life Church now, 20 years from now, starts compromising the historically orthodox Christian faith by even slowly capitulating to culture. Deciding whether a certain view of the Bible has merit on the basis of, on the basis of whether or not we think it places us on the right side of history or not, rather than whether the scriptures clearly teach us, teach it. If we do that, fire us. Hold us accountable. Call us to repentance. Hold any man standing in this pulpit accountable in that regard. Second, it's going to be very difficult for you to do this unless you yourself are being actively discipled and growing in Christian doctrine. 
That's the reality. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we're having Sunday evening gatherings uh, this year at Gospel Life Church. It's important to read and learn and grow in doctrine so that in part you can see when false teachings are creeping in and identify them and so that you can hold the church accountable to remain faithful even when it's hard. And so tonight we unpack the first half of the first EFCA statement of faith. And we're, we're going to be in particular diving into a very short look, an introductory look at, at the doctrine of the Trinity and, and in particular why that matters in the Christian life. Like why does the Trinity matter? You should all come, okay? Bring friends. Like, this is something we should all want to come to, learn more about, so that we can grow in, our, in, our, in these areas of doctrine, so that we can hold the church accountable. Third, as the, as the full and final solution to this, for us, the, the means by which we can make growth, the means by which we can remain faithful, primarily focus on the gospel. Primarily focus on Jesus and his power. Primarily focus on preaching that gospel to yourself and others at your church throughout the week because the gospel, my friends, is the solution. Certainly what we're talking about, like faithfulness and perseverance to the end, that's a gospel implication. But the way the gospel implications work is not by primarily focusing on the implication, but by focusing on the gospel. It's like C.S. Lewis saying, you know, if you put first things first, you get first and second things. If you put the second thing first, you lose both. If we put all of our concentration on perseverance, perseverance, perseverance will fail, right? Why? Because it's an entailment of gospel graces. So focus on the gospel. Declare your innocence to yourself and others because of Christ's work, which as we'll see in Revelation 12, is one of the primary places where Satan loves to accuse and attack believers, lying to them about their status in Christ. Why do you think it is that the one place where Satan loves to, to bring lies and accusations is related to upending the gospel. Because he knows if you upend the gospel, you upend everything. It's a belief and trust that Jesus did for us what we could never do. It's also a belief and trust that because of his work, he's now in union with us. He goes with us. There's, a, there's power in the gospel to overcome and remain faithful because there's actually presence of that gospel with us. Jesus himself who's joined to the believer and shapes our desires to look more and more like his and not the other way around. We're having a baptism today and it is the perfect illustration of this. We die with Christ, we're buried with him, and then we're risen to new life. From that imagery, how can we possibly get the idea that, that in this somehow we shape Jesus to look more like us? We die. Our old selves are dead. And we're risen to a new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And this, of course, brings us to the table. It's so absolutely intentional that Jesus gives two ordinances to the life of the local church. Baptism and the Lord's table. And what are both of them? Pictures of the gospel. That, that the church is forced, therefore, to preach the gospel to itself all the time. So here we are at the table where we see the reality of Christ's death on our behalf. His blood shed for us, his body broken, that we might have life with God, and that he is now joined with us. This